There are six calls to action from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about missing children and burial information, specifically surrounding residential schools. At the time of this recording, none of the six have been completed. The numbers are between 71 and 76. 71. We call upon all chief coroners and provincial vital statistics agencies that have not provided to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada their records on the deaths of Aboriginal children in the care of residential school authorities to make these documents available to the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation. 72. We call upon the federal government to allocate sufficient resources to the National Center for the Truth and Reconciliation to allow it to develop and maintain the National Residential School Student Death Register established by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. 73. We call upon the federal government to work with churches, Aboriginal communities, and former residential school students to establish and maintain an online registry of residential school cemeteries, including, where possible, plot maps showing the location of the deceased residential school children. 74. We call upon the federal government to work with the churches and Aboriginal community leaders to inform the families of children who died at residential schools of the child's burial location, and to respond to families' wishes for the appropriate commemoration ceremonies and markers and reburial in home communities where requested. 75. We call upon the federal government to work with provincial, territorial, and municipal governments, churches, Aboriginal communities, former residential school students, and current landowners to develop and implement strategies and procedures for the ongoing identification, documentation, maintenance, commemoration, and protection of residential school cemeteries or other sites at which residential school children were buried. This is to include the provision of appropriate memorial ceremonies and commemorative markers to honor the deceased children. 76. We call upon the parties engaged in the work of documenting, maintaining, commemorating, and protecting residential school cemeteries to adopt strategies in accordance with the following principles. 1. The Aboriginal community most affected shall lead the development of such strategies. 2. Information shall be sought from residential school survivors and other knowledge keepers in the development of such strategies. 3. Aboriginal protocols shall be respected before any potential invasive technical inspection and investigation of a cemetery site. Today on the Green Majority, we're going to do a long, in-depth discussion about carbon offsets, as well as Canada's carbon accounting, the way that we use forests to, uh, to pretend that we're doing more on climate mitigation than we are. And then Stefan is going to interview Shelley Petrie the program director of the Greenbelt Foundation, about strategies for expanding the protection of near-urban nature.
So carbon offsets. This, uh, this section on carbon offsets was prepared for us by Christopher J. Moray. So three stories broke relatively recently that cast doubt, Chris writes, on the benefits of using a carbon offset credit market to mitigate climate change. One, a study by Carbon Plan suggests that California's carbon offset credits a centerpiece of its cap-and-trade system, has overstated its carbon reduction benefits by as much as 30%. Two, the environmental group The Nature Conservancy has begun reviewing its involvement in selling useless carbon credits to companies like Disney and BlackRock, possibly as a result of a Bloomberg report written last December. And three, a letter to President Biden, signed by various environmental and agricultural groups, has declared that Biden's plan for a carbon bank, which would help U.S. farmers get into the carbon offset credit business, is a scam. So what is a carbon offset credit? Certain governments, like California's, have passed laws that put penalty payments on companies that emit carbon. One way around the payments is to buy carbon offset credits. These credits aren't often created by expanding natural carbon sinks, like planting new forests. They're usually created by measuring how much carbon would have been emitted if a forest were cut down or a swamp were drained and paved over, for instance. Rather than representing negative emissions, carbon credits therefore represent avoided emissions. The idea is that by creating a mechanism for polluters to pay non-polluters, large areas of nature can be protected. But offsetting carbon in this way will never bring us to zero emissions. Because it's impossible to know what would have happened to a piece of land had it not been purchased as a carbon credit, the programs are also ripe for fraud. What Carbon Plan discovered is that at least in California, as much as one-third of all carbon credits have been sold against land that was never actually going to be destroyed. The Carbon Plan study also found systematic overestimations of the amount of carbon sequestered by the trees in question. 
Because most forests contain a range of species, each with its own level of carbon intake, which also varies according to a host of other factors like soil and weather conditions, carbon sequestration measurement is notoriously difficult, as well as being a relatively new science. Nevertheless, Carbon Plan found evidence that the California policy made basic and important errors in its methodology. Quote, for example, in the Southern Cascades region of California, the common practice numbers used in the program average together temperate, carbon-dense forest types like Douglas fir and tan oak with less carbon-dense forest types that occupy more arid niches, like ponderosa pine. In other words, the program for determining the carbon value of these assets failed even to identify the broadest differences in just three tree species. Such oversights seem to be the rule rather than the exception. After a report detailing similar revelations about carbon offset credits being sold through Nature Conservancy, the organization, a top seller of carbon offsets, has begun to more thoroughly investigate its own projects. Last December, Bloomberg ran a story about how Nature Conservancy is involved in selling useless carbon credits to companies like Disney and BlackRock. Ben Elgin, writing for Bloomberg, told a similar tale to the one suggested by Carbon Plan. One account he offered was that of Rosalie Edge, a philanthropist and birdwatcher, who purchased a large acreage in Pennsylvania to protect native hawk species from hunters. Her organization, the Hawk Mountain Sanctuary Association, sells carbon credits worth millions of dollars to companies like J.P. Morgan, which uses them to, quote-unquote, erase its employees' air travel. The credits do not come from expanding carbon sequestration, but from the assumption that, quote, a tree massacre has been averted thanks to the payments from these corporations. But the association never had any plans to clear-cut the forest because its whole existence is premised on the preservation of the land as a hawk sanctuary. In the words of Barbara Haya, a researcher at UC Berkeley who has studied carbon offset projects for the last 20 years, quote, We just don't have time for false offsets that take credit for reductions that were already happening anyway. Finally, modern farmers Dan Nosowitz recently posted an article about opposition to the Growing Climate Solutions Act, a bipartisan bill in the U.S. that would seek to create a carbon bank. Explaining the carbon bank, Nosowitz writes, quote, Soil has the potential to trap more carbon with certain practices including no-till strategies, cover crops, crop rotation, and more. If farmers implement these practices, thus storing carbon where it can't contribute to climate change, they'll receive credits. They can then sell those credits to corporations that need them to offset their own emissions if they exceed a certain limit or cap. While it's supported by some agribusiness groups, as well as the Democratic and Republican politicians being paid by agribusiness groups, dozens of environmental, political, and social justice organizations have come out against the bill. It seems that businesses like offsets because they allow them to avoid actually reducing emissions by capitalizing already existing nature.
Yeah. So quickly before we get back into that la- the last bit of this uh, deep dive into offsets, I want to point out the ways in which many of these offset schemes are a product of our, our warped thinking, thanks to the ways that uh, the neoliberal thought has completely embedded itself in our understanding of solutions to problems. And in doing so, it sort of ends up pitting environmentalists against those who should be our allies. You know, time and time again, we've seen, and as has been highlighted in the piece earlier, carbon offsets have been touted as a way to close the gap between the funding needed to hit the world's conservation goals and what we have available to us now. You know, the argument goes that it costs money to protect land, and so here's a way to bring that to bring that good into the market. Let's let big business subsidize uh, them for the right to pollute, as they like. And the same goes for paying for the transition of farming into more carbon-friendly practices. You know, as we've heard on the show multiple times before, from places like the Farmers Union, the sector is hurting and needs capital to transform. And so along comes this offset program to fill that gap. And so in both of these scenarios, the argument is basically money doesn't exist to do this good thing, so let's, uh, let's allow ourselves to continue to profit on the bad things we're doing to pay for, this other, to pay for the good. That argument might have been convincing 30 years ago, but it's of decreasing value now with 10 years left. You know, we have 10 years to get this done, and so we must step up and find the money. I don't know, maybe it's hidden somewhere in the billions of dollars that we spend on airplanes, or sorry, on warplanes. I don't know. But the answer is definitely not allowing ourselves to be bribed by those who created the crisis in the first place, and in doing so, allowing for those who care about carbon to be fighting farmers and conservationists and those who wish to protect the environment because because that is seen as the only place to get money. It's a scarcity mindset that we cannot allow ourselves to get bought into. Something I've sort of been thinking while we've been talking about offsets, and we may or may not dig into it when we talk about forest accounting in the next segment, but is this idea of the sort of questions around the philosophy of like commodifying nature. And and there's this idea that I distinctly remember when we were like, when I was studying like environmental economics a zillion years ago in university, and this idea that we need to like internalize the things that have been deemed externalities, accounting for the damages that are done by market practices or by resource extraction and wrapping that into the cost of whatever that practice is as a way of sort of like putting monetary value on a given um, ecosystem or like non-human animal. It's an issue that's at the heart of offsets. Once you start applying a dollar value to let's say a tree or a given non-human species. And yes, there is some benefit to be gained from that because once you apply a dollar value to something, then it can be maybe properly quote unquote valued within the economic system. And I can see how that can be a solution or a path towards progress. But ultimately, I think the question has to be raised and, and is being raised. Does that just further entrench us in a dangerous economic market-based financially focused paradigm. As we sort of allot value to a given ecosystem, are we in actuality stripping it of its inherent value through that monetization as we have devalued humans by commodifying ourselves and others through labor and by reducing something or someone to its quote unquote economic value? Are we in fact only causing more damage by reducing everything to to its commodity value, I guess? Those ecosystem services. Yeah, exactly. And like, and I think the question sort of continues to come up when we're talking about offsets and 
ITMOs and forest accounting and nature-based solutions is, is that's a question that is, that continues to be raised, like most important questions have been within the environmental movement by indigenous communities and indigenous uh, sort of actors and movers and shakers is because they keep sort of like raising this question of valuing the land for itself and inherently or valuing it as like a dollar value that can be worked into an economic system that's ultimately just been at the helm of all of the damage that that we've inflicted over the last several hundred years. What's an what's an ITMO? Internationally transferred mitigation outcomes. It's a, it's like a unit or mechanism for emissions trading between nations, if that makes sense. So it's like up so far above me, I can't even. So I'll go back and finish what Chris has written here. A recent study from The Guardian and Greenpeace uh, makes essentially the same criticisms that Chris previously made, this time with major U.S. airlines as an example. The article highlights inaccuracies in the measurement and certification of certain projects brokered by the U.S. nonprofit Vera, which apparently administers the world's leading carbon credit standard. The organization's website states that Vera quote, catalyzes measurable climate action and sustainable development outcomes by driving large-scale investment to activities that reduce emissions, improve livelihoods, and protect nature, and is responsible for monitoring and certifying 77 carbon offset projects. The nonprofit issued a response denouncing the study as biased and false and claims The Guardian is undermining legitimate climate change mitigation efforts. In the letter, Vera claims that, quote, the article exhibits a clear bias, is riddled with substantive errors that betray ignorance about how carbon offset credits work, and utterly fails to accurately account for the vital role of such projects in channeling much-needed finance for the preservation of tropical forests. But the underlying issue, beyond quantitative quibbles about how much carbon is being saved and what those estimated carbon emissions should be worth on the marketplace, is that the carbon is still being emitted by airlines, by Microsoft, by JP Morgan, and whoever else can afford to pay. If the logic of carbon offsets is taken to its conclusion, as Lauren has just pointed out, i.e. all emissions must be accounted for by all the plants in nature that have been measured and saved in this way, then those with credits will be allowed to emit CO2 equal to the total amount of stored carbon in all living trees on Earth. In other words, carbon offsets are a worse-than-useless way of doing anything about climate change, no matter how rigorous Vera's certification process is. So even if we grant Vera's claim that they can be sure that the forests they're selling would otherwise be destroyed, it still amounts to ecological extortion. Jair Bolsonaro embraced this logic, as reported by the Wall Street Journal a week after Vera's letter, under the title, Brazil's Climate Overture to Biden, Pay Us Not to Raise the Amazon. 
Bolsonaro is looking for $1 billion U.S. to reduce deforestation in the Amazon by 40%. But, complicating his criticism, Chris links to an article in Yes! magazine showing how the Yurok tribe in California has used the offset program to buy back 100,000 acres of their land. The tribe used a government loan to buy a small amount of land 10 years ago and then sold it to companies as a carbon offset and bought more land. The article quotes tribal vice chairman Frankie Myers as saying, quote, When I was a young man growing up on the reservation, all of our land laid behind locked gates. We'd have to break into our land in order to get into our prayer sites. In order to get to our gathering sites, we had to be outlaws. My kids growing up will never have that feeling. My wife can gather without worrying about being harassed by law enforcement or a logging company. That last story is exactly, I think, the example um, of why we cannot allow the scarcity mindset to dominate. You know, land back does not need offsets. Land back should be given by the government immediately and done so. And so it is great that, you know, these are great things. But I think it's a mistake to believe that land back has to have a, you know, has to come from carbon offsets or protecting the environment. It is a it is a requirement on us as a society to do right by these by indigenous peoples and to you know and to give this land back. And so like you you can't just presume like we can't allow the scarcity mindset to presume that the only way to do this is through uh, offsets. Now we're just going to take some time to put out a call for a social media coordinator. So take it away, Lauren. Yeah, um, we are always talking about how like, hey, follow us on Twitter, follow us on Instagram. And unfortunately, we're really, really bad at engaging on both of those platforms, which is why we need help. So we're putting the call out. We're also going to be posting um, uh it's a, it's it's like a it's not really a job listing. It's kind of a description of what the quote unquote position would entail. But we're looking for somebody who is r- relatively experienced in social media management. That could just be that you manage your own personal page to help us um, sort of engage with uh, listeners and um, grow a bit of a following and use it as more of a communicative tool um, on Twitter and Instagram. Um, less so on Facebook. Who knows? Maybe TikTok maybe clubhouse likely not probably just focused on Twitter and Instagram. And realistically, there's only so many, so many hours in a day we might ask you to devote to this. But, um, if you are a listener and you are interested in current issues and the environment and politics and climate, and you don't mind spending some time on your phone or on your laptop, uh, hit us up at, um, the best email address to use is, I think, contact at greenmajority.ca. Um, or you can reach out to us on Twitter or Instagram um, and be like, hey, my name's so-and-so. I could do a way better job at this than you've been doing. Um, and no offense will be taken as Lauren and I run those platforms and we get it. We could be doing better. And one, even from a standpoint of just one thing that we are hoping to do is use it more as even educational tool. There's a ton of research that goes into these programs and a ton of articles that we share on our website. And these, this kind of thing could be shared, ex, uh, sh- could be shared more. And so, yeah, we're, this is a, a, a early summer call out for a bit of support. So if you're interested, we'll let you know. Well, we'll let you know. That makes sense. So if you're interested, please let us know.
Yeah. And the added bonus here being that you would be our first social media coordinator. So you can turn that role into anything that you think it should be realistically. Um, we're all volunteers here. This position does have an horarium associated with it because we understand it's a really specific skill set. But um, but yeah, we'd be happy to have another rad organizer of sorts on our little green majority team. Well, so with that, you, you cut out slightly slightly when you said the word honorarium. Yeah, so I'm just going to say that again. Honorarium. 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 Now we're going to take a break and return with a discussion about carbon accounting in Canada and how we use forests to pretend that we're doing more than we are. We're going to spend a little bit of time today talking about forest carbon accounting in Canada and how it is depressingly skewed. And I, I was kind of inspired to, to take this to the group because uh, something I've, I've started hearing in meetings recently is despite the fact that Canada boasts about our forests as carbon sinks and, and even accounts for the sequestration in our carbon plans, forests in Canada haven't actually been sinks in a really long time, like, like 20 years long time. And in actual fact, they've been a net contributor of emissions. And this is largely as a result of like rampant forest fires that have been increasing in recent years. Like we know things like pine beetle infestations, um, deforestation and mismanagement, the like. Before we kind of dig into things, I thought I would kind of like really, really simply explain that concept. So it's to sort of break down the essence of the problem. Basically, if there's more growth than decay in our forests, if, if they're healthy, then they act like a net sink. They absorb more carbon than they release because a healthy tree uh, that is growing absorbs carbon dioxide, like we know. But if there's more decay, if there are more trees literally dying than there are trees living, and off-gassing CO2 when they're rotting or when they're burning, um, then the forest acts as a net source of carbon, releasing more carbon than the remaining healthy trees can absorb. So that's like a simple way to sort of understand how this accounting works, whether whether a forest is a is a carbon sink or a carbon a source of carbon emissions. What's insidious to me about sort of all of this happening in Canada is that in the past, um, and 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 I believe. Still recently, I don't know if things are changing now that Canada is putting in a new NDC, but um, Canada has made the case to the UN that we don't need to include our forest carbon in our accounting because things like forest fires and, and pine beetle infestations, um, which are largely responsible for the increase in emissions, are beyond our control, is, is what is argued, is that those things aren't our fault, so therefore we shouldn't have to account for it. Um, and what this means is that on paper, Canada could be 
meeting its Paris climate targets when in reality we're, we're exceeding them. As of 2019, uh, at least we, we still weren't accounting for these forest effects that are that are sort of deemed beyond our control. So Canada was on the books for emitting roughly 700 megatons of CO2 each year. Uh, and remembering, again, that this doesn't include any impacts from forests or other parts of our landscapes like, like wetlands and, form, and farmland. But based on information by NRCAN, uh, Natural Resources Canada, in their latest uh, national inventory report, which is a, an annual report that uh, tallies our GHG, our greenhouse gas emissions, are, are struggling um, managed forests, a specific term referring to forests that aren't left to be wild and free, but have, have some sort of intervention. Our managed forest released an average of 24 megatons of CO2 per year into the atmosphere during the 2010s. Um, and the full sort of climate impact of that lost uh, carbon sink amounts to something like 184 megatons of CO2 per year on average. Again, this was this was looking back at the 2010s. And again, that's over and above the approximate 700 megatons that we were accounting for internationally. So moving away from those sort of averages for a second, because there was that average 184 megatons per year. Um, in 2015, as a result of sort of the crazy wildfires, um, looking at specific numbers, the forest contributed more than 237 megatons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere um, than they absorbed. And again, in 2018, when which was another really bad year for, for forest fires, our forest resulted in a net emissions of 251 megatons of CO2 each year. Um, so these aren't small numbers when you consider the fact that our average megatons are something like 700 megatons of CO2 emissions each year. So, so you're adding an additional 250 given it, depending on the year. But again, um, when you exclude these natural disturbances like fires and insect infestations, and you're only looking at forest areas directly impacted by like human activity, the picture changes. And it's these areas where forests act as a, as a net carbon sink, and it's these areas that are accounted for. And it's, and it's this information that, from what I understand, has been reported internationally. I can um, get into Canada's climate plan because uh, Canada's recent Healthy Environment, Healthy Economy plan plugs in some specific new actions and where they're going to be spending money on things. But I think I want to stop talking for a second. And I think I want to hear from, from my friend, Steph and Dave. What I don't understand about carbon sinks in consideration with these sort of national accords is that it strikes me that in 1990 or 2005, however, when it was, these carbon sinks also existed, right? Like if we are trying to reduce our emissions back down to a place where they were below, you know, these certain levels. To count now, like, unless it's new growth, like, unless you're actually increasing the way that the, like, unless you have a good accounting of how much emissions the carbons, carbon forests or forests, sorry, how many, how many emissions forests were removing uh, in 1990 or in 2005, it seems a little disingenuous to be like, well, we should get to count these, uh, this other information now even though they were already doing that work previously. Like if we're trying to get back to a balanced earth, counting what good that's happening now, but not counting good that was happening then doesn't get us there, right? Right, yeah, that I, and, and I don't necessarily have a specific like answer for this based on research, but yes, I would assume that like you, like that, that should just be our baseline, like the, the healthy forest status quo, you would assume, yeah, isn't necessarily acting as a carbon sink. It's just, it's just the- well, or, yeah, or even if it is acting as a carbon sink, it was also acting. Uh, it was also acting as a carbon sink back then, 
right? Mm-hmm. And so like, and so like, we're getting it's you know, be like as if we owned a bunch of the ocean, and we're like, well, we should get credit for the fact that the oceans absorb so much of the carbon. And it's like they do, yes, yeah. But like, it existing there doesn't. It also existed before, exactly. and so well, only the chain should count. Exactly. Well, and I and I think the thing is, I think that's kind of where Canada has been able to justify not including these like these emissions contributions because they're like, hey, this would be happening anyway. It's not my fault. There's a pine beetle infestation. It's not my fault. There's a forest fire. So why should I have to deal like have to account for that? But I guess the thing is, when it comes to contributions, it's like, yeah, maybe if there wasn't a climate crisis, you wouldn't have to account for it. But the reality is like if you were to like dome off Canada, that would contribute to the carbon emissions in our dome. So therefore you have to account for it and you have to like make room for it. Yeah. Or at least you shouldn't be able to count the good years as good and the bad years not as bad, right? It it feels almost like the, similarly to how, you know, markets or or similar to how we often talk about how we'll, we'll privatize money, we'll privatize the, the profits and publicize the, the, um, we'll privatize the profits and publicize the costs. We're doing that, but with the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. we're, Getting Canada gets to count the goodness of the of the causation, uh, the goodness of the forests, but can ignore the fact that yeah, there's a big forest fire and that's a huge amount of emissions. Yeah, it, well, and it's it's also just it's freaky, I guess, because it's it's just an easy example of how easy it is to fudge your accounting numbers when it comes to carbon emissions. It's like, it's, if, if we continue to like misreport information and it's, and it's up to us to self-report on something like this, it's going to be fair, not easy, but it's, it makes it easier for Canada to say, Hey, actually we're meeting our, our contributions. We're doing our part. We're doing our job. And if every country does that, then all of a sudden we're like, great, we're net zero by 2050 when in actuality we're screwed and we're, we're rocketing towards a two degree warming threshold or whatever. So, and like, and like, and this is so, this is so benign. This isn't even complicated. This isn't even getting into like ITMOs and offsets and trading schemes and stuff like this. Like this is literally just like reporting the numbers correctly from the trees, which is, which is like a concept that like people understand and people already know how to do and you don't have to like incorporate weird, complicated policy into it. So it's, realizing things like this are happening makes me so nervous about carbon accounting and and making sure that our that our modeling is like based on accurate data in general yeah yeah Um, the the implications that this has for net zero is we've we've, talked about the show before but really i think this is the kind of stuff that when you hear environmentalists get frustrated about the concept of net zero the frustration comes from these things. That net zero implies our ability to calculate everything perfectly. And mm-hmm. we know we won't and haven't and aren't. Exactly. Right? Like z- us producing zero carbon is a way to, uh, or greenhouse gas emissions more generally, is a way to guarantee we're not increasing carbon. Net zero implies accounting and mm-hmm. accounting can be fudged. Really? Exactly. Numbers can always be played with. And, and that sort of, it, that goes double when you consider the fact that like not an insignificant part of Canada's climate plan and cl- and Canada's climate spending is going towards nature-based solutions, which aren't inherently a bad thing. There's a lot of good benefits towards nature-based solutions. I'm not here to like totally bash the concept, but like there's a lot of spending that's going towards it. There's a lot of spending that's going towards those 2 billion trees that are talked about to death all the time ad nauseum. So it's something like, 
in, in, in the healthy environment, healthy economy plan, which was released in December, we're like, we're investing $3.16 billion over 10 years. So in the lead up to 2030, um, to partner with various organizations and bodies and communities to plant 2 billion trees. Um, and that, that will contribute to us reaching 20 or 2030 target by X percent. Um, uh, so like all of, all of the different numbers, I'm not going to rattle them off, but basically all of the nature-based solutions combined, um, in the plan, it claims that it'll accelerate, um, reduction of carbon emissions by an estimated four to 7 million tons annually by 2030, which like sounds great. And that's if all goes well, but we can't guarantee that all goes well, because we know that <laughs> that our forest based on NRCAN also released another really helpful report called the state of the forest report. And I'm quoting directly here. Scientists predict that increasing temperatures and changes in weather patterns associated with climate change will drastically affect Canada's forests in the near future with the rate of projected climate change expected to be 10 to 100 times faster than the ability of forests to adapt naturally. So that means that even if all of these 2 billion trees actually get planted, even if they're all like nurtured and loved and taken care of, which, which we know they're not gonna be, they're seedlings that are tossed on the ground and then walked away from. Um, a, a forest in an increasingly warming and changing climate isn't, isn't a forest that is given the opportunity to grow to its like, um, to like reach its full potential from a carbon sequestration standpoint. So, so the fact that, that the government even claims to be able to say like, oh, and if we plant all these trees and we do all this stuff, we're going to be able to reduce by X percent. It's like, how, how, how can you possibly know that when the environment, the physical environment and our climate and our weather is so volatile, um, especially when it comes to something like forest, when it's, um, we were talking about, uh, what was it? Zombie forest fires was a term you used a couple of days now weeks ago on the show where like the forest fires from last year in BC haven't burnt out completely. Um, so how, how can that possibly be a hospitable environment to grow 2 million or 2 billion seedlings in and expect them to actually be able to sequester a, a, a reasonable amount of carbon? Yeah. So what is the better version of this? Right, like, what is the, mm. what would we prefer to be seeing the government do, and and for me, I think the answer is just to focus entirely on reducing emissions. Like, yeah. let, let's 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 basically like, yes, let people do the work of trying to do other stuff. You know, I I agree with you. Nature based solutions have some great things. You know, more forests, almost certainly better than less forests, etc. But I think. 99% of the effort has to be, I think- Has to be in those mitigation. Reduce. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be about reducing emissions directly. Like I think that's, to me, that's at least my response or my thought process around when I get frustrated with net zero, that's where I go to. But, but what are your thoughts? I would want to know like the degree to which we're currently relying on these things. Like how, what percentage of, of our claims to mitigation is actually relying on these potentially useless- that's a question worth raising because it's it's something we don't have an answer to. It's like how accurate how accurate can our climate plans possibly be if measures like this and like and shortcuts like this are being taken? That's something something listeners can pay attention to is when uh, I, I knew I knew Canada will probably release something to the next COP, which is upcoming, and in that there should be a, a piece of like where they expect reductions come from, and in that you can look for things like nature-based solutions or other types of um, reductions that should be listed in that front. I know like that's one of the things that Canada did 
in like Canada is responsible for the fact that forests can get counted. That was Canada's big thing. They were like, it should be 1.5 degrees, which was good. And also was like, we should be allowed to count our forests as carbon sinks. And that was a little more tenuous for yeah, obviously uh, good reason. Sometime before the end of November this year, before the con- the 26th Conference of Parties meets to discuss the international climate change mitigation attempts, Canada will release something that will indicate the degree to which we're relying on these kinds of solutions. That'd be my estimation, yes. Welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or maybe you found us on our podcast, which can be found anywhere podcasts can be found. However you found us, we're so happy to have you. My name is Stefan Hostetter, and I am here with Shelley Petrie, the program director at the Greenbelt Foundation, who have just released a report uh, titled The Near Urban Nature Network for the Golden Horseshoe. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome. Thank you for the invitation. This report was put out by a coalition known as the Southern Ontario Nature Coalition. We've covered the issues around the Green Belt quite extensively for the past two years due to all the happenings, which is, I guess, the polite way of putting it. But I'm curious, what drove you to write this report? And then who is a part of this coalition? The report builds on the concerns that Canadians are having around the loss of nature, both in our country and then globally. It's been known as the biodiversity crisis. And in city regions like the Greater Golden Horseshoe, where a lot of your listeners live, the biodiversity crisis is paired with the climate change crisis. The more nature we lose, the more vulnerabilities our communities have to climate change. And the Greenbelt and the Greater Golden Horseshoe is really a model for, it's a global model, it's used in some other jurisdictions around the world, but it is about creating that sustainability within major urban centers. And that includes protecting biodiversity, and that includes helping us adapt to climate change. And those pressures are, and the importance of of that are, are becoming more important. So here, in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, we have something to build on, but the work that we've done shows that you actually have to build on the green belt. There's more to do inside the green belt, and there's more to do in the vast nature network we have even outside of the green belt. Awesome. You introduced me to a new term with the term near urban nature. So for our listeners who may not know exactly what that is, what's unique about near urban nature? What's unique about it is we've seen you go down into cities and there's a lot of concrete and buildings and 
Cities have been looking to rebuild their street tree infrastructure and to enhance their park systems and to put more parks in place. But on the outskirts of cities, where we have yet to put that open rural space into our urban boundaries, it is farmland. It is headwaters for our river systems. It's moraines in this part of the world. And and it's a lot of natural areas and ecosystems. So if you look outside our cities, there is a great deal of green space out there. And that nature is giving our cities a lot of services. In the Greater Golden Horseshoe region, it's really pronounced, in the, or there's a lot of good connection between our cities and that nature with the Greenbelt, but also because there's 21 urban river valleys that come out of the Greenbelt and down straight through our cities. And those river valleys really provide a lot of benefits to residents. From a climate change perspective, those benefits can be flood control and places to go on extreme heat days. And so this report sets out a series of recommendations or in a series of steps to help protect and build on the Greenbelt. Although it's funny saying the words build on the Greenbelt, because I imagine part of the suggestion is to not actually build on the Greenbelt, but instead to develop further the policies that, that surround the Greenbelt. But I wonder if you can tell us what are the steps that you are recommending to be taken? Well, first is when we look at the Greater Golden Horseshoe region, it's it's, here's a big number. It's 3.2 million hectares. But more importantly, that size is uh, the, the size of this urban footprint that continues to grow, grows from Lake Ontario all the way up to Lake Simcoe. So Barrie and Aurelia. It goes over from the Niagara region and the Niagara Falls over into Peterborough, Rice Lake, etc. That is a really big area in southern Ontario. If we continue to let the environment in this region become fragmented, Uh, where species and wildlife can no longer move through the region. What you're doing is you're actually cutting off wildlife movement between east and west southern Ontario. You're also cutting off potentially these northern routes, wildlife corridors between the United States over and around Lake Ontario, and then up through the region into the top of the Niagara Escarpment. Those are climate change migratory routes. We really need those for wildlife to be able to adapt. And you need wildlife in order to have biodiversity because wildlife is plants and animals, right? So to to get climate resiliency, you have to have biodiversity. So the footprint of this region is really quite important to Ontario and to Canada from a biodiversity and protecting nature standpoint. So the recommendations we have inside our report focus on the fact that we need to protect more of these spaces, but we also need to make sure that we have the corridors functioning in those spaces. So we have to protect the corridors too. So the report builds what is called an ecological network of cores and corridors. And there's some new tools that are being provided by the federal government where when we talk about protected spaces, we don't only have to talk about large protected areas where you can't have access, people can't have access to them. New tools are talking about areas where people already have access, but if we manage them for biodiversity, we we can elevate their protected status. So it's really putting together those cores and corridors. So things like If you look into the green belt, wetlands and areas of natural and scientific interest, provincial wildlife areas, sometimes they even sit side by side. And if you are increasing the protection, uh, you've got a bigger core with inside the green belt that can help with that connectivity from core to core and help that wildlife movement through the region. 
So that's the focus from a biodiversity standpoint is really identifying those cores and corridors. So our work is to go beyond just the green belt to do that. So places like Rouge National Park, Coots to Escarpment, Ecosystem Park over in Hamilton and Burlington, and many other areas provide those corridor linkages. And so it's about making sure we understand those, map them, and then protect them as a province and municipalities. The other recommendations then come into really recognizing the benefits that that work is going to give a growing region, the Greater Golden Horseshoe. And those are benefits like climate resiliency, increasing our resiliency to flooding, increasing our resiliency to extreme heat days, increasing our resiliency to drought. And those are three of the major impacts that this region will experience but also providing more green space. We can use these corridors, for example, to help provide more green space. If we have to protect them, let's increase the benefits that they deliver to this community. So a lot of people have heard about the Meadowway project using a hydro corridor, both as a trail and as a biodiversity restoration project. That's innovation. That's the kind of thinking that we, we need in this region. And then, of course, there are, there are other benefits, in, including local economies. We're going to need a lot of native plants in order to correctly, adequately do uh, biodiversity restoration in the region. And our native plant industry is quite small. That has a lot of room to grow in the region. One of the biggest areas that we're also, and this is where the, S, the Southern Ontario Nature Coalition is helping to support, one of our members is doing Indigenous engagement, and that's a, an Indigenous-led organization. Reconciliation is a big reason to focus on nature in Canada. And a lot of readers have heard about the federal government has some targets to protect 25% of Canada's lands and waters by 2025 and set the stage for 30% protection by 2030. One of the big reasons they're doing that is conservation through reconciliation. And that's one of the intents of uh, this project too. So we're in the early stages of reaching out and, and having conversations and engaging with Indigenous communities in the region, particularly with the Williams Treaty area, starting in, in the eastern half of the Greenbelt. But that is also a very important goal of this project. And with reconciliation also comes the understanding of Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous science and Indigenous ways of knowing, which come with nature. And that can provide some solutions and some guidance to the work that we need to do in this region. So the Southern Ontario Nature Coalition uh, is a coalition of local, regional, provincial and Indigenous experts. And it includes Ontario Nature, Wildlands League, Cambium Indigenous Aware, Carolinian Canada, and Ontario Farmland Trust and Ontario Land Trust Alliance. And these are organizations that have lots of experience in conservation, parks, climate change, and Indigenous engagement and native plant industry. So it's a broad collection of organizations that have put their minds to an era of a nature network. Yeah, it's quite the range. It is. And we did a lot of consultations as part of the project. Now, it was during the pandemic. Uh, so these were online consultations. We do want to continue those consultations going forward. So now that we have some work done, it's really to get back out into the communities, hopefully in person in the near future, to keep talking about and building on some of these uh, work that we've identified to date. 
Awesome. Yeah. And so that's clearly quite an extensive and broad group of stakeholders, as well as a, a set of a set of goals. And so I'm wondering if you can dive into maybe one or two little key examples or, or some of the principles and see how, how these steps play out in the future and why they're important. So some of the actions that we'd like to move forward on while we're continuing to consult with broad, the broader community in this region is we have identified a lot of opportunities to protect more natural areas and corridors. So we can move forward in working with communities and where we've identified protection opportunities to get some community buy-in. We'd also like to do more mapping to actually identify the corridors. And those will help us then work within communities to get them protected. From a restoration point of view, because biodiversity needs a lot of restoration in this region, the federal government's 2 billion tree program, where they want to plant 2 billion trees in Canada, you can plant 54 million trees in this region. There's room for it. That would get us to 30% forest cover in the Greater Golden Horseshoe, which is a healthy target to get to. We'd want to increase those targets in the future decades. But that's another step that we'd like to be part of that tree initiative that the federal government has going and to really have an ambitious target here in the region. We'd also like to do a native plant seed strategy and pilot program in this region where they're building more capacity to provide native plants to restoration projects in the region. And we'd like to, we'd also like to figure out from a restoration point of view, where are the priorities? So we've worked in the past, conservation authorities in this region that know where, that, that have priority restoration projects listed. And we'd like to do, you know, some mapping from a climate a vulnerability point of view and include that in the analysis and then really start to pinpoint where some restoration dollars need to go. Awesome. As you mentioned, you are hoping to get out and, and do more consultation and some more work. So I'm curious how folks could get involved and where people can go to learn more and support your work. For broader consultations at this point, we really do want to get out in, into the communities and present that, that work that we've done and talk about a near urban nature network for this region. So we've got a lot of really engaging maps, which is a tool people really like to look at. So we've got a lot of maps we'd like to bring to the community that can help with that engagement. There's a lot of places if once we pass the pandemic, we'd like to take people to have discussions about. And it really, it's about at this point, talking with the community about understanding the need for this, for where we've come with the vision of the Near Urban Nature Network at this point and getting some more feedback. But then also helping if we are able uh, to get some future funding, help us start delivering on some of those early activities that the coalition would like to start working on. So hopefully we can do this in person, but we're also prepared to have a big summit online. We were part of the People Summit in earlier June, where a Wildlands League and a number of other organizations got together to look at all of Ontario and where new protected areas could be created in all of Ontario. It was quite a great summit. It was very engaging. There were 500 people that signed up for it. So we know we can still meet online, but those are some of the uh, conversations uh, that we look forward to in, in 2021 and 2022. Amazing. Is there any last thoughts, anything you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, the floor is yours. The conversation in Canada around nature is really starting to change. And our governments are seeing the power of nature in being able to solve some of our more pressing social issues like climate change, but other issues too. And that's really also come from the communities. And I think that's part of why we named this the Near Urban Nature Network, 
is this really is all about nature. And how can we change the way that we are approaching some of our big challenges in the region with nature at the center of those decisions? And that can really be quite transformative. And that's something that we really look forward to as part of rolling out the the Near Urban Nature Network project is really being able to have that conversation about nature and how it changes how we make decisions. And it will mean being able to stop the loss of biodiversity in this region and increase the health of nature in this region. And that's going to give us a lot of community benefits. And I think the public is really on side for that. And it's really becoming time for those conversations and for that change in how we live with nature and live in harmony with nature. Amazing. Thank you so much, Shelley Petrie, the program director at the Greenbelt Foundation. Thank you so much for being here and keep up the great work. All right. Thank you very much. All right, listeners, if you have stuck with us this whole time and you've listened to the whole show, we would truly appreciate it if you would take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever it happens to be that you're listening. Rating and reviewing helps not only spread the word about the show, but it allows you to pass along to us your valuable feedback, which we promise to take into consideration going forward. Thanks so much for listening to The Green Majority. We'll see you next week. It's not easy.